Welcome back, Tiger fans, the true Tiger fans, to Rockin' Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. It's Brandon BK Kylie. This is After the Box Score, your Upset City edition, where the only Tigers that count win the Tiger Bowl against the defending national champions, LSU. Ranked number 17 might be secretly bad, but that's not the point. Ranked defending national champion on your home turf, LSU. Coach Drinkwitz gets his first win in his third game uh, and his first upset in the third try, something that took Barry Odom three years to do. BK, say words. That we saw on Saturday, it was the most excited that I have been about Mizzou football in four years, I believe is the correct time span. I wrote about this in my five takeaways column, like at the very end, but... Mizzou game days had basically become a weekly tradition in the fall of me waking up on Saturday mornings and convincing myself that Missouri had an opportunity to win a big game. And weekly, I became more often than not disappointed by the results. And for the first time in a while, I didn't really have any sort of expectations. I hadn't really prepared myself for the possibility of Mizzou actually winning this game against LSU. I had no realistic belief that that would happen. And then they win 45-41 to against a team that, like you said, I have no idea if LSU's actually good this year. I know they won the national championship a year ago. I also know that most of the players that are playing today did not play for that team a year ago. But I know that they are unbelievably talented. Like, say what you will about whether or not they're actually going to be a good team this year. I have no clue. I know they're more talented than Missouri. And I really know they're more talented than the team that Missouri put out on the field on Saturday. When they announced, like, two hours before the game, hey, we're going to be without three of our top four wide receivers. We're going to be without three of our top four (laughs) defensive tackles. Our team has already been decimated by opt-outs and injuries and all of these different things. And, oh, by the way, you've got a quarterback starting his first real game in the SEC that actually matters. And it all came together, man. Eli Drinkwitz, awesome. Connor Bazelak, you have a quarterback, Mizzou fans. I hope you enjoy it because he's going to be the starter here for years to come. And they had guys step up at almost every level of the team at at least one point in the game. It was incredible, man. I had so much fun watching that. It's, I, I, I don't get animated very often watching Mizzou football anymore just because I've covered the team. I went there. Like, it, it doesn't happen all that often, right? I was legitimately jumping for joy after this game. It was awesome. <laughs> Same. Mm-hmm. I, do you remember, let's see here, Iowa State, Nebraska, 2009 football. Does that game in particular stand out to you in any sort of way? Um, I don't believe so, but should it? I'm assuming that it should for a reason. So, Iowa State won that game against Nebraska. We all remember the 2009 um, Nebraska team with Indomitian Sioux, one of the best defenses yeah. in, in, in the world, right? Um, Iowa State forced like five turnovers against Nebraska, and it was – it was just an incredible upset, and the coach at that time, um, Paul Rhodes, they caught him in the in the locker room talking to his team, and he was like on the verge of tears, and it was just like he was trying to say words, and he couldn't say anything without getting choked up, and finally he just said, "I'm so damn proud of you." I do remember that. That's the overwhelming feeling I had of this game. 
I was so excited that it was happening. I was on the edge of my seat as we got to the fourth quarter and LSU was driving. You know, it was it was a fun game, you know, regardless if you had a dog in the fight or not. But it was pointsy, it was big plays, it both on both sides of the ball. It had a dramatic finish. And really, just that itself would make it an incredible game. You know, when we did our top uh, top games of the of the twenty for twenty countdown. 2012 Missouri-Tennessee made that list. That was not a game that meant anything, but it was incredibly high scoring, a lot of fun, and it's something that we remember. This game is going to be on the next countdown list that we have, just based off of those factors alone. Add into it that we were missing guys from opt-outs, from injury, from COVID, and you had a team that was outgunned from the start that just threw haymaker after haymaker and hunt around and finally made a play at the end. The only feeling I had, I mean, I had joy and, 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 and excitement and everything, but I was just proud of those guys, and I'm sure Drinkwitz is too. Yeah, I was reading from uh, Dave Matter's story, and according to him, and he uh, apparently did this research, it was the first time that Mizzou has won as a two-touchdown underdog in 23 years. 23 years two-touchdown yeah. underdog. I mean, it's one of the biggest upsets by a Mizzou football team in more than two decades, you know? Like, when yeah. you just put it that way and you you simplify it down to its core a little bit, it, it kind of shows you how special this was, what we saw on Saturday. And again, like we have said at the beginning, we don't know what LSU is ultimately going to be. And frankly, I don't care. Like, no, it, doesn't it doesn't matter, matter. to me what they ultimately do the rest of the year. This is the type of win that eluded Barry Odom early in his tenure. And as a result, he never was able to energize this fan base. It didn't come for him really until Drew Locke's senior year when he beat Florida. And at that point, everybody was already decided on where they stood on Barry Odom. Mm -hmm. You were either pro or anti-Barry Odom. And if you liked Barry Odom, that was your defining, oh, see, he can do this. And if you didn't mm -hmm. like Barry Odom, it was like, well, he did it once, but now Drew Locke's leaving. How's he going to do it in the future? <laughs> so like everybody already had their minds made up. This is the type of win that energizes a fan base. This is the one where you point to for your recruits, for prospective coaches, for the fans that are going to support this team, and you say, jump on board. This is going to be a fun ride with whoever the coach is, and for obviously Mizzou, Eli Drinkwitz. I pointed, Nate, over the last couple of weeks to Iowa State with Campbell mm -hmm. and Purdue with Brom. Early mm -hmm. in their tenures, they had the upsets, and it for both of them, I think it was like a five and seven year for Purdue and like an eight and four, seven and five, something like that year for Matt Campbell. It's not like they were great teams when they pulled off those upsets, but it gave them a spark. It gave them something to cling on to that they said in the future, okay, if we can beat Team X for Mizzou this weekend, it was LSU. For Iowa State, it was Oklahoma or whoever. And for Purdue, they beat up on, I think they beat Ohio State one year. It was, yeah. Um, and that that's where you... You have a feeling of, okay, if they get this thing right, there's a ceiling to what they're trying to accomplish here. It never felt that way with Odom for a lot of fans, and it should feel that way right now if you're a Mizzou fan after watching what we did against LSU. I mean, Odom was very much in the vein of, of Gary Pinkle. He was a boring guy, and the games that they played were typically pretty boring. I will say Pinkle was boring too, but if, if the – if Missouri was better than the team they were playing, they typically won. If they were less talented than the team they were playing, they typically lost. You had a couple of seasons, 2007, 2008, 2013, 2014, where you had 
stringing together a lot of kind of close wins and unexpected wins because you didn't realize how good the team was until you actually saw them. So those kind of stand out. But for the most part, games went as scripted, and that was true for Odom. Odom was a great scouter. He was a terrible developer of talent, and he was not ah, tactically very sound on the offensive side of the ball because he just, you know, he had Heupel who just went as fast as he possibly could, leaving his defense out to dry. Then he had Dooley and whatever the hell Dooley did. So, you know, he his games went as expected. You know, that's just part of it. Derek Dooley had Ole Miss. <laughs> He'll always have Ole Miss. I'll give him that. Um, but it was it, they're boring. Yeah. They're boring. And I'm not saying that Eli Drinkwitz is going to be this high variance like, oh, you're going to pull off an upset and, oh, you're going to really fall apart uh, randomly at games, which also Odom did. Um, but I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying you need these these kind of excitement wins, these excitement moments uh, on your program or else you're nothing. And and you're absolutely right, BK. Iowa State Purdue have a reputation as giant killers. Whether they are or not, it doesn't matter. That's their reputation. And you do that by gaining a couple scalps. And you do that once a year or once every couple of years. And you you create an identity to to recruit kids to. And speaking of identity, I mean, good God. If you want to talk about the effect, the the power that an offensive identity or a defensive identity has to compensate for lack of talent, yesterday's game was exhibit A because Drinkwitz just let it all hang out. Um, yes, trick plays, but unique formations, aggressive play calling with his backups and walk-ons. And it caught LSU completely by surprise, completely flat-footed, and it worked, and it was When's the last time we've seen offense that creative? I mean, you'd have God. Oh, 2013, maybe. I, I don't even I think mean, that that season the, was no. creativity. Josh Henson was not a creative offensive coordinator. Yeah. He played to their strengths. I don't think that we've seen it really. Make Brad Smith, maybe, but that was a different kind of creativity. And that's like a, that that's was a one guy. Snap yeah. creativity. Yeah. In terms of like what the actual coaching is. In, in my adult life, and, like, my my viewing of Mizzou starts in the early 2000s, I can't think of a time when I've watched an offense that looks like this. Mm-hmm. Like, aesthetically, the, the pre-snap motions, the jet sweeps, the... I mean, they ran a double reverse pass on Saturday. <laughs> they yeah. had a flea flicker early in the game that worked. I mean, they they threw a deep pass on a broken play to their former quarterback who is now playing receiver and was only in the game because three of their top four receivers are out right now for COVID or COVID-related causes. Like, I I don't even know what to say. Jalen Knox looked lost in the previous offense, and he looks like a star in this one. You've got Mm -hmm. guys that are at running back right now who, in Tyler Beatty, who looks like he's having a resurrection this season. Like, it's... It's wild, and you find these guys that just, they need to be in open spaces, and they're finding open spaces no matter who the team is that they're going up against. So to answer your question for me, I can't think of one. Do you have something in the back of your mind where you're like, oh, this was the year? absolutely not. I mean, I think people would gravitate to either 2013 or 2007, right? The Josh Henson, James Franklin, you know, Henry Josie, Express, which again was not creative. They were just really, really good. They functioned at a very high level. 2007, just overpowered dudes, right? It was it was a spread system that was still relatively new. 
um, that took advantage of very specific skill set that Missouri uh, football team had at the time, which was a quick trigger, uh, trigger man, Chase Daniel, and a lot of speed on the outside of the receivers and two awesome tight ends. Like it just utilized the, the athleticism correctly. It wasn't schematically different or tactically innovative like that. It just wasn't that they were very good, but not that it was just, I seriously think that we have not seen anything like this and it's why I'm so confused. I mean, you know, yes, Pinkle and, and his offensive coordinator, so Christensen, Yost, Henson, like, yes, they threw a hook and ladder every once in a while or had J Mac throw a pass every once. Like, I'm not saying they were bereft of trick plays, I'm saying you don't see the schematic from play to play, down to down, formations and motion. We just never see that. And it's so cool. And like BK, as, as a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs, I know, you know, with Andy Reid and his offensive genius, sorry about the game today, by the way, but yeah, um, like you see like the the intelligence that he has about football and how he can draw things up. And that's kind of what we're seeing here where Drinkwitz just finds a way to get his guys in a position and Deontay Smith, <laughs> Deontay Smith, number 31 wide receiver, like throwing blocks, coming down, taking balls on, on quick hitches and hitting nine yards, catching everything his way. Like that is using scheme to find what your guys do best and then tactically, schematically make it so that that guy can succeed. And you just don't, we haven't seen that here and you rarely see that uh, at the college level. Towski Dove beat LSU's top corner and future first-round draft pick, Derek Singley Jr., on multiple plays. Not beat one. like a drum. Multiple plays. Yep. Dove finished the day 6-for-6 six six when tar- targeted, 83 yards, and had a 58-yard touchdown. Deontay Smith can now have an actual receiver number because he had six <laughs> catches for 54 yards against LSU. Again, a former quarterback, Michael Wilson, a great moment in the game. Chance Beautiful. Looper, who, if I'm not mistaken, it was his first snap of the season, but it was mm-hmm. certainly his first game in which he received snaps on the season, caught a 69-yard mm-hmm. touchdown in his first career nice. game. Nice. Jalen Knox was awesome, finished the game with 76 yards from scrimmage. If you look at just the snap totals among wide receivers, and this is coming from Pro Football Focus, Deontay Smith led the team in wide receiver snaps. He had 53. <laughs> Towski Dove was second with 51. Jalen Knox third with 38. Barrett Bannister with 33. Michael Wilson, again, a converted quarterback with 16. Chance Looper had five. And Chris Abrams-Drain, who had some other moments that we don't need to speak of, had one at wide receiver. If I told you before the season, Nate, that in game number three, your top two wide receivers in snap count would be Deontay Smith and Towski Dove, and that (laughs) happened against LSU, by the way. Mm Mm-hmm. You would have said, oh, my God, please just end the season. Just just put me out of my misery. This is going to go really poorly. And it was the opposite of that. They caught everything that came their way. There were zero drops in this game. Connor Bazelak, as a result, 29 of 34 for 406 yards and four touchdowns. It, it, it was incredible, and it's not just the numbers, as you say, schematically sequencing, which is also mm-hmm. important. Like, it's not just the designs. It's how do you set up that really cool design that you want to pull mm-hmm. off? Because if you want to set it up or if you want to pull it off, you've got to have the zone read that's going to the right five times early in the game. And then suddenly, on the sixth one, instead of running that exact same zone read, well, oh, by the way, you forgot about the receiver that's dragging across the route, 
And now we've got a quarterback who's rolling the other way. He throws it over the top, broken coverage, the corner didn't follow him, and now you've got a touchdown. Like, that's what's really important about the sequencing of these plays. And it seems like Drinkwitz is also really good at that. So Mm -hmm. he's got the designs. He's got the sequencing in terms of the play calling. And my biggest concern coming into the year about Drinkwitz was him being his own offensive coordinator and how he's going to be able to have both of those duties of the logistics of being a head coach on game day and also being the play caller on game day. He seems to be highly successful at it, and I'm ready to go ahead and put that out of my my fears <laughs> at this point. I, I think he's going to be okay at doing that. I like to think he is. He's going to have some he's going to have some bad days. He's going to have some bad games. Um, that's just going to be part of it. And I don't know once the team starts finding success if they find success like who knows what that's going to mean. Um, but so far no. One of the fears that we've had early on is that and and so far no. I don't have any any fears from that anymore. I feel pretty good about it. Uh, we've talked a lot about the offense cuz I mean let's be frank. They were they're the ones blowing holes to the coverage like that. That's that we won with offense uh, or we hunt with LSU uh, via offense. We won the game with defense. And I know that a lot of people are going to point to the 41 points and go, we won with defense. Are you sure? Uh, and I understand that, you know, it's easy to say, well, it's the goal line stand too. And, and yes, that's true. But the defense was not given a lot of favors here today. And keep that in mind, you know, they were down, you know, it's a super young secondary, but they missed, basically missing every single defensive tackle that they have. Uh, they reverted back to the 4-3, or sorry, not the 4-3, but the four down linemen, so defensive end, two tackles, and then another defensive end instead of the 3-4 schematic that they were doing previously just because they didn't have enough big boys to throw out there. Um, and it it did fine, but keep in mind that LSU started on, like, the Missouri 25, the Missouri 7, the Missouri 47, like – I haven't run all the numbers yet, but I can tell you that LSU's starting field position might be in plus territory, which is incredibly rare to see in any kind of football game, let alone a college football game. So the defense was put into a lot of bad positions. What you want to look at is yards per play, yards per possession, which I haven't calculated yet, but I can tell you it's probably not going to be a whole lot because even with their 41 points, they had 14 possessions to run the, what do they have, 400 and. 60 470 yards something like that uh they had to do it over 14 possessions in 71 plays so it it, they didn't have a lot of field to work with and that's why the defense gave up 41 points but let's remember what happened in the last 10 seconds lsu's ball on the one or two or whatever it ended up being and the defense stopped and cold four times flat out and that was pretty impressive yeah, I think the the stat that really stands out to me is 0 for 10 on third down for LSU. Um, that's pretty important. Um, when you when you convert exactly zero third downs on the day, I mean that's that is absolutely massive. Uh, they did end up LSU did having according to the stat broadcast site seven yards per play on average, which is higher than you'd like to see. Um, but like you said, they were put into so many bad situations. Missouri fails a fake punt from their own 47. Boom, ends up an LSU touchdown. Uh, they fumbled a punt at their own 25. LSU touchdown on that drive. Basilic fumbles on a sack strip at their own 31. That leads to a field goal by LSU. And one more time, another fumble by Larry Roundtree. That leads to LSU getting the ball at MU's five-yard line. Two plays later, they score another touchdown. 
So, I mean, that that led directly to 31 LSU points in terms of the turnovers. They finished with 41. I don't have to be a mathematician here. When their drives <laughs> did not start via turnover, they scored 10 points on the day. So, yep. Missouri's defense was solid. They weren't great. They were solid. But the biggest thing was that they were... They did well in situations that they needed to. The 0 for 10 on third downs is huge. And then, of course, you've got the the final stop of the game. They came up big when they needed it the most. And listen, the margins in these types of games are really slim. Really slim. There was another game that, in terms of, like, stylistically, totally different. I'm thinking of Kentucky, of course, a couple of years Mm. ago. Totally different style of game. I think that one was, like, 14-12 or something as the total. Mm -hmm. But it came down to one final play on the last play of the game. Kentucky scores. Missouri's not able to get the stop. In this one, and I know that there are questions as to how that score happened, but they scored nonetheless. (laughs) In this one, LSU was not able to score. Four straight times, Missouri stuffs them basically at the goal line. And that's the difference, man. I... I don't know what it is about this team, but there is something about the mindset that feels different. And maybe I'm attributing something that isn't there to being there, but it it feels different to me. The energy, the mindset, there is something different about them defensively where it felt like to me they knew they were going to get a stop in that situation. And they also just have really good players. Nick Bolton on that third down, he knew what was coming. Terrence Marshall lines up as the wing back, and Nick Bolton was never once convinced that it was going anywhere but to Terrence Marshall. He <laughs> jumps to where Terrence Marshall was going and knocks the ball down immediately. Mm-hmm. And guess who they're going to go to on fourth down? The same dude. And so they're able to break it up. It was Bledsoe who had the unbelievable play, and he comes up big in the biggest possible spot. So you're right. It, they didn't win because of the defense necessarily, but the defense was a big part of the story in that one as to why they were able to win that game. Nick Bolton's always going to steal the show from the defense. Uh, I think counting uh, assisted tackles as halves, he had nine tackles total, three passes broken up, just marvelous. Uh, Bledsoe obviously had the big deflection at the at the last play of the game. Uh, Nicholson and Jeffcoat had the sacks on the day. But to me, the heroes, the, the unsung quiet heroes, is Markel Lutze and Isaiah McGuire, who damn near played every defensive snap because they had to um mcguire is kind of a defensive end defensive tackle hybrid let's see of course is is uh, kobe whiteside's battery made for this year but they were told to hold the line and you had a couple of plays where they would fold in the interior um they got some pressure but you know whether it was by design or by what they did lsu did not want to run on this defensive line even with you know, complete depletion of the defensive tackle depth. Um, I think on the day they ran like 16 times. And I know that LSU is, you know, the recent iteration of LSU is, you know, Joe Burrow, Joe Brady throwing it all over the place with their freak receivers and awesomeness. But those first couple runs, man, like in the first quarter, negative yardage. They weren't going anywhere. And LSU was like, all right, cool. We're just going to throw it. Mm -hmm. And that is completely on Utsi and McGuire and – whoever else stepped in when McGuire went, went down briefly with injury, like they were able to shut down that running front. And then the last four plays of the game, they were there creating pressure up the middle. Um, those guys didn't stuff the stat sheet, but they are 
they are the quiet heroes of yesterday's game. Do you know Trajan Jeffcoat left the field for a total of two snaps defensively on Good Saturday? Two. two. Jeffcoat, McGuire, Utzi, all a new career high in snaps played yesterday in that game. Um, Jeffcoat, I thought, was the star among the defensive line. And we've talked mm-hmm. about him before, Nate, this season. Uh, I want to spotlight him here. Multiple quarterback hits, four hurries in the game, a sack against LSU. He was going up against offensive tackles that should have been more talented than he is. He's your hope. If you're looking at the defensive end position right now, Jeff Coat is the hope. He is the one that should provide you the belief that this can get better because Missouri hasn't had a pass rush off of the edge in two, three years now, basically, since Marcel Frazier left. Like, he was the last Mm -hmm. guy that really gave you significant pass rush off of the edge that you could count on every week. Jeff Mm Coat might be able to be that guy. And if you're looking at it through the lens of just how long can this guy be here, he's technically a junior this year. And because of the NCAA's new rules, he could be here for two more seasons. He's technically a junior next year, too. Yeah. Yeah, so next year doesn't have to be his senior year if he doesn't want it to be. Now, I don't know what his plans are or if he ends up being a stud, which is possible, I guess. Uh, Maybe he leaves for the NFL after next year, right? I have no idea what his future looks like, but it's possible he could be here for two more years. And with the way that Eli Drinkwitz is recruiting right now and some of the talent that he's bringing in, specifically at the edge, that might be enough. That might be kind of the the band-aid that they needed to be able to get them to this next era of whatever D-line zoo is. So he's a really significant player in what Eli Drinkwitz is trying to accomplish here, and he came up with big with some massive plays in that game against LSU. Yeah, it sucked that uh, Trey Williams really didn't get get a lot of any stats, really no stats. Uh, he had some pressures that I saw, mm-hmm. um, but mostly not really a factor. So, yeah, he and he and Jeffco man the ends, and uh, Jeffco's the one that's definitely making making plays. And you know that's what we wanted when when Jeffcoat um and and Jatorian Hansford signed a couple of years ago we're like okay these are the building blocks this is what we build our new D-line zoo around and you know, Jeff Coates gone and then Hansford's gone and now Jeff Coates back so like this is what you wanted and, and it's really great to see that even a kid who missed an entire year basically uh still has it and can still bring it against uh the quality of, of offensive line like LSU you know one of the things that was really going through my head BK uh, certainly at the beginning of the game, even before everything started, and, and definitely while it was going, um, and, and really kind of solidified it once it was over. You know, it always feels like, and I'm sure every fan base feels this way, but as a Missouri fan in particular, and a Missouri fan for the past, you know, let's take the last five years, it always feels like when there's a some kind of rash of injuries or a backup gets pressed into, into playing time, like... Oh, I don't know, like Connor Shaw going down with injury again in 2013, or even last year when Wyoming unexpectedly had to play a bunch of freshmen on the defensive line, or Vanderbilt has to start their backup quarterback and then put in their backup, backup quarterback. It always felt like it happened against Mizzou, and it always felt like Mizzou lost those games. I mean, Purdue, it did, now they didn't end up losing that game, but Purdue goes with their backup quarterback, and he's now a backup yeah. in the NFL. <laughs> yeah, and it's like... Because of it, that game, probably. It always feels like, you know, the team the team Missouri's playing has some kind of thing happen that's bad, and then that team wins anyway. And when you saw that white side was gone and, like, all the defensive tackles are gone, the receivers are gone, you're like, well, okay. 
And then they win. You're like, yes, finally, <laughs> finally, we got all of the issues before the game. And then we finally pulled. It was just it felt it felt overdue. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's more examples of this. Remember the LSU game when Mizzou didn't end up having to see Fournette <sighs> and Darius yeah. Geis runs for like 200 yards. And it's the most yards still that LSU has rushed for in a single game under Ed Orgeron was that game against uh, Mizzou a few years ago. Um, another Georgia one, Todd Gurley. Nick Chubb. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Todd Gurley ends up being ruled out like two days before the game. And that was actually a decent Mizzou team that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Nick Chubb ends up being out there and he was incredible that day. Uh, so yeah, it, it happens a lot for teams that Mizzou's going up against. And f- for the first time in a while, it happened for Mizzou this time around. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was a really great quote after the game from Eli Drinkwitz as he was having his post game media conference thing, whatever that the, the one that he did with sec network yeah, um, yeah. on the field after the game, they, they asked him about this and being without so many players and circling the, the wagons. Right. Um, his quote afterwards, and let me make sure that I get this correct because I, I don't want to misquote him because it was so perfect. Um, he said afterwards to sec network and I quote to boomer, nobody circles the wagons like Mizzou. <laughs> Which is just the most Eli Drinkwitz quote you could possibly have after a game like yeah, that. Like, yeah. always be recruiting. It's a little cheesy. Um, Mizzou had just lost a recruit in St. Louis to Oklahoma, yep, like 48 yep. hours prior. It's just, it, Oklahoma had a rough game that night. It, it just all kind of, it worked together really well. And I think it showed kind of the difference of, okay, this is Eli Drinkwitz's team, as opposed to who you said with Barry Odom, kind of a boring guy. He wouldn't give a quote like that. He would give you something that is bland and vanilla and probably true, but it would be filled with cliches just like that was. But it's not fun. It's not exciting. It doesn't get you energized as a fan. And that's kind of the difference there. Is it tangible? Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Probably not. But it mattered to me in the moment because I enjoyed watching it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, with the boringness, Pinkle, he'd, he'd win a couple of blue chip recruits, but mostly recruited guys that they would develop and he would do it. Um, Odom, same thing. Not going to wow you with any recruiting class. And, you know, the aims were whatever they were. But yeah, Drinkwitz comes in, you know, gosh, he took over. When was that? December? December December 9th, like Steve's yeah. in my head. I, I don't know if that's true, but let's just say December 2019. In less than a year, he has raised Missouri's recruiting profile, pulled off his first upset win in the first three games against a team that Missouri has yet has never beaten since they joined the SEC. Like he yeah, did that in three games. December eighth was the day that he was December officially 8th. hired by Mizzou. Yep. Recruiting profile lifted immediately. Wins, you know, at one in three. Three of those games were in ranked ranked teams. One of them is the greatest team in the world. Like. The excitement is palpable. And I, I I keep telling myself, Nate, slow down. Slow down. Okay? We this is a small sample sport. You can't draw any long term things off of what you just immediately saw. But that's okay. I don't care. I stopped watching the game analytically because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm thinking about success rates and blitz downs and targets. And I just I stopped doing that and just started enjoying it as a fan, which Again, it's been so long since I've been able to do that. Um, you just the excitement's back, and that's all you really want. I know you and I were texting, and you're like, "Missouri can't lose this game," and I know I responded, 
it's okay. It's still been a yeah. good game. And I know, I know Sam said the exact same thing in his editorial this morning. Like, Hey, it's still a good game. I still wanted them to win and they still did it. And you're like, Oh my God, this is so cool. What is this? See, I, I disagreed with you in the moment and I still disagree. I think it mattered that they won that game. Not like, of course it matters now that they have, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. But had they lost that game, I think there would be something to it of Mizzou fans being like, Oh man, they, they really had a shot to win that thing. And that's awesome. Yeah. But the benefit of it, if you lose, feels a little hollow. Like, it, it almost feels like it's like, okay, I think they're getting ready to turn the corner. I, th- I think they're in a place that I feel better about than, it, than they were when I was watching this under Barry Odom. Mm-hmm. But eventually that becomes super hollow because Odom did that a lot. Yeah. Odom would get you close. And there comes a point in time where there's an expiration date on that. And I don't think it's year one for Drinkwitz the way that it might have been for Barry Odom, just because people, when he was hired, weren't thrilled about that hire. Um, And there was obviously so much more surrounding the program at the time that had things in turmoil as well. But they had they lost that one and then maybe you keep it close but lose against Georgia and you lose close against Mississippi State in the year, you win the season, like, two and eight maybe three and seven and you're like okay that that was fine they they showed me enough to where i'm kind of excited about next year winning that game changes everything it really does i now expect them and vegas by the way does as well to beat vanderbilt handily i expect them (laughs) to beat arkansas i know i know oh okay keep going keep going arkansas is better than i thought they were but i think missouri's better um Kentucky, Mississippi State, South Carolina, in play. I, I'm not going to expect them to win those games, but they're at least in play now. And so it's changed my view of the season in that the only game that I go into thinking, or the two games, that I think, okay, Missouri's going to lose this one and it's probably going to get a little ugly, are Florida and uh, Georgia because they're just, those two teams are awesome this year and Missouri's not going to be able to compete with those two. The rest of the teams on their schedule, I think they can absolutely compete with, which is not how I felt coming into the year. Okay. So am I getting out over my skis? I don't want to, I don't want to yuck your yum and I don't want, I don't want to crap on anybody's parade. Like this is, this is a great time. And I, I want to enjoy it for what it is because, oh my God, BK, you know this. We just haven't had this. We never have this. All I'm saying is that, yes, you got your first upset and you did it in your first three games. You got a big one. Whatever asterisks you want to throw out there with the hurricane, the late travel plans, the COVID, like you could, you could throw them all out there and I don't care because we still got this game. Here's the tough part. For any college team, and in any in any sport, really, you got your upset. You're a young, culture-building program that just got their first scalp. Now what? Now what? You got up for LSU. Now you turn around, and the next week you play maybe the worst college football team in the country right now. Yeah. What do you do there? Are you, you win by are, 15. <laughs> well, you better. You yeah. better. Because if you don't, it doesn't matter how you lose. If you lose, you've just 
you've sucked all the air out of that upset. And that's not some you know profound thing that I'm coming up with, but it's a thing that young teams struggle with the most. And I can't mm. tell you how many times that young coaching staffs with young teams get the scalp and then fall apart because they couldn't get up like they could the last time. And they spent the entire week of everybody slurping them up and then just forgot to show up and do the easy thing. And that's, I'm always going to be concerned about that because, you know, I'm a, I'm a descendant of a nervous monkey. That's how we got there, right? But, like, I'm always going to worry about that with my program because it's really easy to fall into that trap. Really good point, and it's why next week's game takes on even more importance now than it did before. Um, You couldn't lose to Vandy no matter what, but now you have real momentum. And whether it be, like I said, with the fans, the, the, the recruits, whoever, there's momentum in Columbia right now. And it started the moment that Drinkwitz was hired and has continued throughout uh, there was a detour after that Tennessee game, who I think is better than we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, that offensive line is just Ooh, mauling people. They are mm-hmm. they are real. Um, I'm I'm ready to say that at the very least about Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you have it, and it's real, and there's something tangible behind it for the first time. Before it was okay. Recruiting rankings, nice. That's great. Can they sustain? Um, the, the winning the press conference, great. He sounds like he's going to energize the fan base from that perspective. Now you got to win. That's the hard part, winning, right? Mm-hmm. Going out and actually putting something tangible on the field. And they did that. So now you got to follow it up by showing, okay, we're not just going to beat some of these good teams. We're not going to pull off the one-off here and there. We also are going to take care of business against the teams that we're supposed to beat. And that's the boring part nobody wants to talk about. But the thing that made Pinkle, for example, so successful is that he always took care of those games. You mm-hmm. very rarely had to worry about the Vanderbilts of the world coming up and beating Mizzou. They were going to take care of business in those games. They were going to treat it like a business trip. That's what now the task is at hand for Eli Drinkwitz. Um, and then it's probably going to get derailed again against Florida down in, in Gainesville. <laughs> but then you yeah. got to take care of business again down the stretch. But you're right. This does take even more importance, added importance to, uh, to what they're going to try to do against Vandy. But... I will add this, the fact that they have a quarterback that I trust makes me feel even better about them being able to do it, because if you don't trust the quarterback, that's typically how you get these high-variance teams. If you've got a good quarterback, you got a coach that you trust, and you've got a defense that can come up with some big plays, that that's where typically you can have a little bit more belief in what they're trying to accomplish. Calm throw, Connor. I mean, I don't know if you watched him on his touchdown passes, but like, Typically, his his celebration was run down the field at a pretty good clip with like a fist or two fingers in the air, and like we can't hear him. I mean, I, there's only ten thousand people in the stand, but we can't hear the dude, so we don't know what he's saying or how he interacts with his teammates. He looks like the most boring dude in the world. And I love it. I love it. Remember how James Franklin would almost throw flat-footed, like yeah. he'd catch the snap and then like waltz back a little bit and kind of. Take a little glide step to the left. And then when he'd run, he'd be ferocious. But, like, he was just like, eh, in the pocket. I'm not saying that, you know, that's how uh, uh, Bazelak is. But he's got that same demeanor where he's just unflappable, uh, very chill. Even after he got sacked, he was like, all right. (laughs) Like, he just got up and, you know, here we go, next play. And that's rare, especially for a redshirt freshman. Um, So, what is he, 19 almost. Uh, That's rare to see, but – Kid's got an arm, and he's got a really good, cool demeanor about him. And, yeah, that that brings some stability to a team. You're absolutely right. Nate, last week he had a bad snap that was apparently instigated by the defense as they were clapping for the snap. 
Um, so yeah, not, not great. Um, but it, it happened, and then he completes a pass that ends up becoming a big play. Yeah, this yeah. week, another bad snap, and mm-hmm. he's able to calmly go collect the football and throw it away. And what could have been a disaster ends up just living to fight another down. And that, that feels kind of like who he is, right? It, we said this after the first game, and we didn't know how much importance it was ultimately going to have this season, but you mentioned it immediately. You just feel like he's he's calm, cool, collected. The offense is not schizophrenic when he's out there. It's mm-hmm. just they are they are getting their job done. He is leading everybody. He's making sure they're all in the right place. It just feels like everybody takes a deep breath a little bit. Like, his heart rate goes from six beats per minute to, like, my resting heart rate, whatever things get really, really erratic out there. It's wild, and it's it's really fun to watch, and he's really good. Like, I, I think we can say now, I, I'm buying in, man. I, I think he's a, a really skilled player. Um, he's really accurate. He gets the ball out with zip. This week, he eliminated the questions about throwing to the middle of the field that we had after last week. He, he started throwing to the middle of the field this week. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not worried about him being overly reliant on one target because we saw this week he's not. He can throw to whoever the open guy is, and he doesn't much care who that guy is. Listen to this stat. Connor Basilic against LSU joined Chase Daniel, Blaine Gabbert, and Drew Locke as the only Missouri quarterbacks in the last 20 seasons to throw for at least 400 yards against a Power 5 opponent. Locke and Daniel did it once in their careers. Gabbert did it twice. Basilic just did it in his second start. (laughs) That's wild, man. That is absolutely wild. And the numbers were not fake against LSU. He was legitimately carving them up from start to finish with backups out there all over the place. It, It was really impressive. What was your takeaway from him? Uh, 85% completion rate. Remember last week when you said if they didn't, if they, uh, receivers had just caught it and fallen down and used like 81% completion rate, 85, 85 this week, just absolutely incredible. Um, he's the dude. I, it's, it's interesting. Cause you know, you can't help, uh, especially when it comes to sports, you just can't help but think about other players that have come before a guy and, compare him to them and especially at mizzou when you have such a great lineage of quarterbacks it's going to happen you know he's not brad smith brad smith was very quiet but like let his game talk and was clearly the best athlete on the field chase daniel was a master of his very specific craft and cocky sob talked a lot of trash on the field and you loved it from your fat little quarterback right blaine gabbert was maybe technically the most sound quarterback but just jittery in the head once Indomitian Sue broke him in half. James Franklin, again, you know, just like casual dress James Franklin, just survey and then run and punish somebody or zip it across the field. Like, he was he was a unique beast as well. Matty Mock was schizophrenic as hell. And, like, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, and that's what schizophrenia is. And then Drew Locke, just kind of big, goofy basketball player, right? Like, he, he wasn't, you know, technically sound, but he had a lot of things going for him. He just had a big arm and he could get it to dudes. Connor is like the Zen master of Brad Smith with the arm of maybe Drew Locke minus a Drew. And I don't know. 
Is that is that is that how you would craft if you if you could only use uh, existing uh, Missouri quarterbacks that came before him? Would a mixture of Brad Smith's quietness, Drew Locke's arm, and James Franklin's casual demeanor in the pocket would that be Connor Bazelak? I think you're missing one. I I I think he most closely compares to Chase. Honestly, like oh side, my good god. <laughs> I want to I want to I want to put a disclaimer out here. Okay. I'm not saying Connor Bazelak's going to be Chase Daniel. Chase sure. Daniel, first of all, was in the perfect offense at the perfect time in the perfect conference. It played yep. the perfect style with the perfect guys around him to be able to do what he ultimately did at Missouri. So I want to put that out. And Chase Daniel is one of the one of the better college quarterbacks of the last twenty years. Like he, he just <laughs> he was perfect for for what he was asked to do there. Stylistically, getting the ball out really quickly, having enough of an arm to be able to get it to wherever it needs to go within the offense. Um, Staying in the pocket more often than not, but having enough mobility to be able to scramble, but not really having that as your first option. Like you could tell in this game, and they mentioned it multiple times on the broadcast as well. He does not view himself as a running quarterback by any stretch. Um, He comes from the wishbone offense, but he is not a running quarterback. And so I think the guy that he most closely compares to, again, stylistically, is Chase Daniel. That being said, he might have a little more zip on his arm than Daniel did. Um, a spe- th- there was one play in particular that didn't get a whole lot of love, and I can't wait to go, go back and rewatch the game because I, 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 I'm going to clip this up for and post it on Twitter this week. There was a play where he found, I believe it was Deontay Smith, down the right sideline on a comeback route, and it was probably like a 13 to 15-yard comeback and it was just the perfect throw. Like, you know how they always say, like, hey, he's got to be able to make the NFL throws. And a lot of the times mm-hmm. they're talking about, like, the fifth, the deep outs, um, stuff that is going outside of the numbers. It's got to be on time. That if he's not on time and doesn't have enough zip, it's going to be returned the other way for six by the corner. Yeah. This was one of those types of throws. And so it was deep, right towards the sideline, right side of the field, 13 to 15 yards comeback. And by the time that Smith had turned around, the ball caught him more than he caught the ball. <laughs> yeah. There was zip yeah. on it. It was thrown with anticipation. He knew exactly where he was going. He made his pre-snap read and was like, I'm going to that guy and it's going to be there. And boom, now it is. That's really impressive for a guy that is making his first start in this new system and had what, like 20, 25, 30 attempts prior to this in the system. So that was really impressive to me, and that that's the type of throw that you just don't see often by college quarterbacks. So I, he's got a little bit of a ceiling as well. I, I he's not going to be Chase Daniel because nobody is, and I would never want to put those expectations on anybody. But stylistically, I think that's probably the one, man. Again, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I just oh, I I get so itchy. I get so itchy when big things like that get get said. But that being said, he's got a good set of throws that we can look to and say, that's that's elite. That's elite. Um, I just the other thing that you got to think of is Chase Daniel. Like you said, he was surrounded by the best weapons, the best weapons for that system. Connor Bazelak just went into a game against LSU with backups and walk-ons. Carved him up for 406 on 85% completion rating. I'm not saying he made them better. I think LSU's scheme had a lot to do with it. 
but it was also Drinkwitz's scheme too. Like you should, if you ever watch this game again, as best as you can, watch the route combinations whenever you see two receivers on the same side. Okay, I'm not saying that what they were doing was completely unique from anything you see at the college level or the NFL level. What I'm saying is that these backups, the guys who can't see the field, were incredibly crisp, enough that they were sucking in uh, the LSU secondary that was usually playing combo zone, but was able to suck them in and open up dudes for the big hit. Like that Deontay Smith uh, pass you're talking about, Deontay Smith ran a lot of different routes, not all of them were comebacks, but like he was really, really crisp on his cuts enough that the secondary was like, oh, it's going to him. And like it would go somewhere else. Um, or what was the other one? A Bear Bannister had a couple of really nice cuts um, for like little out routes that enough of the secondary bit on it and it opened up uh, Michael, Michael Wilson for one, Deontay Smith for another. Um, like it was just really technically sound. And Bazelak was able to place the ball where it needed to be. Just end of story. And that's really tough to run against, you know, Bo Pelini's defense with the LSU athletes. Like, these guys are really good, and he read them incredibly well. Again, is this because LSU's kind of secretly bad? Maybe. I don't know. But they still did it. Um, so it, it was just a super impressive performance. Like, we just don't see that. We haven't seen them in the past four years, and you don't really see that uh, when you're Missouri. So it feels great. Um, you know, I said at the beginning of the year, uh, during our preview series that Vanderbilt is Eli Drinkwitz's opportunity to say, hey, this is not the Odom regime. We are different. And I still say that's true. Even with the upset, like this this game is still a chance to put some distance to say, hey, it's different now. This truly is the new zoo. Because an Odom team would pull off an upset and then lose the next week. Yeah. <laughs> and and this is the chance to say, no, no, this is this is different. We're gonna take care of business against ranked teams and we're gonna put away the teams that we are way better than. And that's where most of my anxiety for this week is, and that's what I'm most looking forward to. And by the way, th- there is also this. Uh it's likely from what we understand about the protocols, they're going to be without the same guys this week yeah. that they were without against LSU. So mm-hmm. you're going to have the same receivers out there. The defensive line is going to be one week removed from basically playing career highs and snaps, and they're going to have to do it again against mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. Um, Towski Dove, got to repeat it. Deontay Smith, got to be good once again. Barrett Bannister, mm-hmm. got to come up with more third down catches across the middle where you're going to get blown up, but you catch the ball and <laughs> you end up moving the chains. Like Tyler Beatty, you got to come up with more impressive plays out in space. Larry Roundtree, who, by the way, we haven't even mentioned yet today, haven't was even mentioned. awesome. Was yes. awesome in that game. That dude is a stud. And he is, we're not going to look back on him and remember his career as fondly as we should because Missouri didn't have the success during his career that they had during some of the other fondly remembered running backs. But this dude's amazing. And he runs like a madman. He's clearly one of the leaders of the team. Um, His style, the grinding, like, ability to be able to just make yards out of nothing through the middle is really impressive and so i we should definitely give him credit because he was one of the most important players in that game we do a thing mv3 right where we get the, mm-hmm. the three mvps of the game i'll go ahead and give one out uh, larry roundtree <laughs> was one of my mvps for that game for one of the three best most important players from mizzou because of his performance against lsu he was great um he's a very angry runner and to be fair, if I try to tackle anybody, I would 
be run over and die <laughs> and i would no longer live um so i my my take on this is not super special but i i really don't want to tackle larry roundtree like he just oh he just looks so mean and so angry and like oh it's it just gotta hurt like anytime he hits somebody remember when he put dylan moses like on his butt in the first game just completely truck sticked him through and i was like Oh my God, Larry, <laughs> you've been hitting the squat rack, my friend. I like this is this is mean, mean running, and I love it. Um, yeah, 18 carries, 119 yards. Just quiet, quiet day at the office. Um, he was great. He was not on my MV3, but that's okay. Uh, he was he was excellent. And that offensive line again uh, looks like Bobby Lawrence is so far kind of holding down the left tackle spots, um, but that offensive line that's was not great last year and not really optimized this year did pretty well it certainly was did enough to open up the holes for for larry and and tyler to run through uh and did enough pass protection uh to get those those bombs going uh i will i will say this the most impressive thing larry did yesterday and i look maybe this is me being a hipster and for or being contrarian for contrarian's sake i get that but watch that flea flicker Mm -hmm. he he got the ball he read the, I think it was an outside linebacker crashing down. He flipped it back to Connor and immediately went into pass protection and absorbed the hit. And that was just enough for Connor to get that ball down to Towski. And like, that was just, that was a pro move. That was, you know what you're doing. You have repped this. You know exactly what to look for. You took the hit like a champ. Like, that was a very impressive moment to me. And, of course, it led to a touchdown, which is great. But, like, Larry's great. Larry's great. Also a leader. And we don't talk about that that kind of stuff a whole lot. And sometimes – I think sometimes we overstate the importance of leadership. And other times we kind of understate the importance of it. So there's this fine line with it. This team has really good leadership. Larry Roundtree mm-hmm. is very well respected within that locker room. Nick Bolton is the clear leader on the defensive side of the ball. And by the way, is apparently yeah. playing through some stuff right now in terms of like yeah. injuries that we didn't we apparently weren't aware of prior to this game. But he was like getting treatment during the game and then coming back out and making the biggest play of the game at, on that third down prior to the next biggest game or, or biggest Incredible. play of the game. Like Incredible. it's really cool to be able to see these stories kind of unfolding in front of us. And I'm also really glad that they're able to live this in what could be their final year. I don't know what Larry Roundtree's plan is, but I mean, I would imagine Nick Bolton's going to bolt for the NFL. He's he's yeah. too good not to. So I'm glad he's able to get these kinds of memories in his what you would imagine is his final season at Mizzou because that's going to be a good one. That's going to be the highlight probably of Nick Bolton's Mizzou career was that game on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. God, there's so much to talk about, and I can feel like we keep missing things, but... We've already, we're almost at an hour. Is there anything? Oh, oh, no, wait, no, no, sorry. So somebody tweeted at us, and I wanted to make sure that we addressed it. Um, Ron Davis, at the the Ronald Davis, uh, he tweeted at us. He said, I say this is the biggest statement win since Georgia in 2013 because it was so unexpected. And he wanted our opinion on this. But he also said, also, I think Basilak literally has ice in his veins. No emotions, just in complete control. Never felt like that watching a Mizzou game, and he's a freshman. Redshirt freshman, Ron, but yes, you're right. Um, we've talked about Connor pretty liberally on the show, so I'll just say 
the biggest statement win since Georgia in 2013 because it was so expected. What do you think, BK? So I, I think the 2014 season goes underrated by Mizzou fans a lot because it was such a weird season. I mean, that Indiana loss kind of threw everybody off of the scent of what that Mizzou team was. And I, I always go back to that game as that's why we underrate in some ways the Marcus Golden effect. That dude was out in <laughs> yeah. that game, and they lost as a result. Mm-hmm. Like They would not have lost that game if Marcus Golden played. 100% no. they would not have lost that game. And they did because he was Correct. out. I would say biggest statement, I think you go back to Arkansas of 2014. And it's not like that Arkansas hmm. team was a great team by any stretch, but you won the SEC back-to-back years. That is not a small thing, you know? And, and by beating Arkansas in that game, that was the clincher. So maybe I'm overthinking this, and maybe it's something else entirely, but... I would go with that one. If you don't go with that one, at South Carolina, where they had the comeback in 2014, was another big one. Um, but before that, yeah, you probably have to go back to 2013 if you're going to talk about anything coming close to this. It, it's either six or seven years ago was the last time that you had a, a win this big. Yeah. Damn, I was going to say South Carolina, but that's okay. The 2014 um, one? Yeah. Yeah. Just because it was that was such a miserable game, awful, awful for fifty-five minutes of game time, and then it just whang, completely turned on its ear in the last five. That was the quintessential uh, Matty Mock game. It really. That was. is how I will remember really Matty Mock was. was that game. I don't know how he did it. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. He finished that game twelve <laughs> of thirty-four for hundred and thirty-two yards. He was terrible. <laughs> objectively so zero touchdowns zero interceptions 3.9 yards per attempt had a 67 quarterback rating which i'm pretty sure is impossible in college football the way that they calculate theirs and they won the game like <laughs> and like 80 yards of that was to bud sasser on yeah one it, it made no sense but they did it and that's that's how i will remember his time so that that that's probably the one but the arkansas win will always have a special place in my memory just because that year was so surprising it made no sense they lost so much from the 2013 team and they were able to do it again to go back to back in the sec east so i'll always have a soft spot in my in the back of my mind for that uh that arkansas game and the celebration that ensued but you're you're probably right it is probably south carolina yeah i mean ron like that 2013 georgia win was out of nowhere like we thought mizzou was good there's like oh but even if they're really good they're still going to lose to georgia and then they won like yeah, that's that's a big statement win. But that was also a really super awesome team and you know, everything that happened after that was incredible. You know, the stories off the field, the stories on the field, just absolutely incredible. That was a statement win, but they had so many other good things happening during that and season. And so many it's other statement just... wins that year. Like Florida the, exactly. the next week, the Gator Chomp <laughs> exactly. at the stadium. Uh Ole Miss going down there and winning that game and just dominating at the line of scrimmage against Ole Miss. That, and Texas A&M. Yeah, I mean, the, the the run at the end of that one. That Ole Miss game, I, I'm always going to remember that for the final drive that they had. It was like... God, that was incredible. I want to say it was like nine minutes to finish the game. It was wild. So that... It was, yeah. It was like a clinic on ball control. It was incredible. But yeah, that that season was full of them. If, you, if it's not one of these 2014 games, pick your favorite statement win from 2013, and it's that. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I think that's, you know, to, to Ron's point, like, yeah, Georgia was such a statement win, but it was a statement in a statement season. Like, it's hard to isolate just that one. 2014, I think you said it perfectly. 
we're all thrown off the scent and then South Carolina happened and you're like, wow. Um, and of course being shut out by Georgia also did us no favors, but, um, yeah, I, I would say 2014 South Carolina. That was, that was an incredible statement. Um, and yeah, we haven't really seen anything like that since, since, since that moment. So, um, man, you know, this is probably pretty stupid of me, but like when we were, when we beat Oklahoma in 2010, obviously I was very happy. Um, it wasn't going to erase whatever happened in 2007 and 2008, but like we got them, we got them. Right. And we're like, Hey, Missouri beat every team in the big 12 or I'm sorry. Gary Pinkle beat every team in the big 12, every single one. Once he beat Oklahoma, he got, he got them all at least once. I was like, that's awesome. That's super cool. Eli Drinkwitz just got one of the toughest scalps from the SEC, LSU. And no matter what else he does, he can always say, hey, I got Missouri to beat LSU while they're in the SEC. And I think that's pretty cool. You know what? That I, I think that's a really important part of this. This is fresh. And that's the thing that changes the dynamic of all of it, right? Because really all we have to compare this to is the Barry Odom era. And the beginning of Gary Pinkle is really actually the true barometer for what we're watching right now. It's not the end when we got all of the reward from being able to be patient at the beginning. It's the beginning. And that's what this is. This is the beginning of something. Now, we don't know what the story is ultimately going to be. We're at the first chapter of whatever this book is. We saw what the book ultimately was with Barry Odom, and we didn't have this feeling at any point early on. So it was actually the early failures did portend uh, the, the, the failures of the regime as a whole. What we are hoping here as a fan base, I would imagine, is that the early successes from Eli Drinkwitz and his staff are going to pretend future successes. And so that's why this feels so different. And it's also the quarterback, right? Like, you right now are in the midst of three weeks into a new regime, a new coaching staff, a new era, a new zoo, if you will, with <laughs> a new quarterback who we were excited about when he signed, but really never got the opportunity to see. By the way, failure of the previous staff was not playing him apparently later in the season last year. No kidding. Yeah. How is this guy not in the field as that as that team has a quarterback who was clearly hurt at the end of the year last year? And was failing to move the ball in any meaningful way. That aside, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a new coaching staff with momentum coming off of the offseason. And now you have the momentum of a freshman quarterback who gets another year added on of eligibility at the college level. With a bunch of dudes around him who you're starting to kind of like to see. And so that also adds to the suspense of what this could potentially be. It's almost like you're starting in the ground floor of something, and now everybody wants in. Everybody wants to be a part of it when you're seeing this new thing that is so exciting and, and, and relevant and shows all of the reasons why you want to jump on board and then actually capitalizes on that. So it's it's almost difficult to compare to anything that we saw from Barry Odom because we never really saw this. And then before that, you have to go back 20 years ago and college football has just changed so much over that time span. It's really difficult to compare that to it either. Sure. One other thing that I, that we got here, I'm trying to find it. Um, oh, okay. Here it is. So I was talking to a guy on Twitter um, at Midwest BMC 
he he brought up to me um because we're talking about Bay's like beginning another year, right? And so he could possibly be six years on, on campus. And uh I mentioned on Twitter that uh Tyler Macon comes onto campus or should be coming onto campus next year. And what this gentleman was talking about was was a little concern that, you know, basically He's concerned that Drinkwitz is going to have a Fromm versus Field situation that Georgia went through a couple of years ago, where Jake Fromm was a younger but still established quarterback. Justin Fields is, you know, second greatest quarterback, not only in his class but maybe the second greatest quarterback recruit ever. Um, gets him on Georgia, and Fromm starts, and they only trot out Fields for like a couple of crappy zone read plays, and then Fields transfers. So what he was worried about was that we run into that situation, and then Bazelak sticks around for another four years and making transfers. Here's what I want to say to that. Um, when it comes to quarterbacks and really just building a college roster in general, the coach needs to take the best guys at all times. Uh, if you have a stud quarterback, bring in another stud quarterback. Uh, if you have you know the greatest linebacker in the country, you bring in another great linebacker. I understand quarterbacks are a little different because only one can be on the field at any time. But it's a coach's job to stock the quarterback room and his team with the best guys available that will come to his team. If they transfer, so be it. They weren't good enough to beat out the guy who was there. And then you continue to recruit the best guys that you possibly can. It's what Clemson does. It's what Alabama does. It's what Ohio State does. So if we are finding ourselves in a position where we are worried that our blue-chip quarterback is not going to be able to beat out the guy who's currently here and he's going to transfer... Good. He wasn't good enough to beat the guy who's already here because Kirby Smart was not good enough to understand the talent. He didn't understand what he had. Eli Drinkwitz is not going to have that problem. He understands offensive talent. He knows what's going to work, and he's going to deploy it on the field. If Connor Bazelik is this, he's going to beat out Tyler Macon next year. Now, I haven't seen Tyler Macon play. I I readily admit that, right? But we're watching this from Connor Bazelik at the Power 5 level already. He's going to play against exclusively SEC opponents this year. He's going to play 10 games. Mm -hmm. He's going to play exclusively against what we all believe to be the best football competition that you can play, right, in America. If he has Mm -hmm. success against this schedule this year as a freshman, a redshirt freshman, then he deserves to be the starter next year, and he will be the starter next year. And if Tyler Macon transfers as a result, then he recruit the next guy. And if Tyler Macon ends up going on to have huge success elsewhere, and I would root for him to do so, good for him. Awesome. Fantastic. I'm going to continue rooting for Connor Bazelik here, and I believe Connor Bazelik's going to be a really good quarterback here. Um, and we have every reason to believe that after his first two games that he has started um, this season against, or I guess two games that he's played this season, uh, any meaningful snaps against Tennessee and LSU. Great against Tennessee despite yeah. the drops. And mm-hmm. one of the best performances by a Mizzou quarterback in the last two decades against LSU. That's what we have to judge so far, and he's passed with flying colors on both accounts. So that's not something that I'm worried about at all. No, absolutely not. It's what every college coach wants to happen. So that's that's it. We have gone 12 minutes past <laughs> the point where I said, oh, we've gone too long. Um, <laughs> but I'll say it anyway. Any, any parting shots before we wrap this up? Just that I'm excited again. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think that that's the the overwhelming feeling that I have right now as a Mizzou alum, as someone who writes about this team, who enjoys this team, who legitimately, like, every Saturday carves out time to watch this team. It had become stale 
for me to watch Mizzou football over the last few years. And that is no longer the case. I enjoy watching this team. I like watching what Eli Drinkwitz is doing offensively. I think he's a really smart guy that has found ways to creatively use his talent. And I think that the team is buying into what he is selling. And that's a really important thing. I saw something. Darrington Evans was a running back at Appalachian State last year. And he played mm-hmm. for Eli Drinkwitz for one season. He tweeted yesterday, by the way, he is now a running back on the Tennessee Titans. He got drafted as a result of playing so well both for and before Eli Drinkwitz at, at Appalachian State. He tweeted yesterday after that game, if you guys knew about Eli what I know about Eli, this wouldn't be a surprise to you. That's really important, man. Guys that played yeah. under him, that really cape for him, that doesn't always happen. And maybe that's a one-off, but I don't believe that it is. Because the guys in that locker room, from what we saw of the post-game videos and the celebration on the field and everything that we saw this offseason as well, which I think probably bought him a lot of goodwill and for good reason. He did the right things, it seemed. I, I think he's getting a lot of buy-in in that room. That's really important, mm-hmm. and it does not always happen. You can be the smartest guy in the room. If you don't get buy-in from those players, it's not going to work. And it appears that he's getting the buy-in right now. So I'm excited. It's fun to watch him again, and I hope that we see something similar again next uh, next Saturday against Vandy. What was your overall parting shot? I'm so glad he's our head coach. And I know I was the first to bemoan firing Odom. Uh, I certainly thought that from an on-product feel that he deserved at least another year. Um, and maybe he did. He didn't do himself any any favors. Uh, he got fired for very good reason. Um, but, you know, just think back where we were in, at the end of November and December, where we were, you know, like pulling our hair out over, you know, the, the list of coaches who were the finalists and everyone hated it. And Sterk went back out there and got drink wits and everyone's like, ah! And just what is 10 11 months since then and look where we're at man like it's good to follow missouri football i know they lost to alabama and tennessee so what so what lots of good teams lose to alabama and tennessee we just took down lsu we can put together a win streak this week we've got a quarterback that's really good we've got a running back who's awesome and will probably play in the nfl next year we have a linebacker who is maybe the best since Weatherspoon, who will definitely be in the NFL next year. Like, we're not a perfect team. There's a lot of glaring holes. There's a lot of youth. There's a lot of bad. But even with all that, it's great to follow Mizzou football. It's a good time, man. It's a really good time to be a Mizzou fan, uh, specifically a Mizzou football fan. I, I want to clarify that. Um, and. <laughs> yeah. I think that they're headed in the right direction. There's going to be some uh, tumultuous situations probably throughout the rest of the season. I'm sure there's going to be some times where we look back and we're like, whoo, maybe a little overreaction after that LSU game, boys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will absolutely probably have those moments. But right now in the here and now, don't, don't pad down what you are feeling in the moment. Allow yourself to feel this. It's been a while since we've been able to feel this, man. It's been a while mm-hmm. since we have just been able to say, ha, hot damn, let's go Mizzou, <laughs> you know, and you deserve to have that. Yeah. That is what college sports are supposed to make you feel. College football mm-hmm. is about having fun and enjoying watching yeah. your team on Saturdays because, man, let's be honest, there are like six to seven teams every year that actually have any shot of winning a college football national title. And that might be exaggerating mm-hmm. it in some years. It might be closer to two to three. <laughs> 
So for the other 128, you got to look forward to something. You got to be able to say, okay, what am I rooting for this year? And as a, as a Mizzou fan this year, what you were rooting for is literally what we saw on Saturday. And so celebrate those victories. Celebrate them like there is not going to be a tomorrow. Because eventually, hopefully, it becomes more than this. Hopefully later on, it is not about winning that game. It's about something bigger. But right now, that's where we're at as Mizzou fans. So let's celebrate it while we can. Agreed. And don't write any love letters. Okay. Well, I'm not I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to write about how awesome Connor Bazelik is later this week. I'm sure nobody else is no going to write that column, that. so I'll be alone. You're right. <laughs> the only one. Uh, that's the show for today. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday. We, Of course, we appreciate the downloads and the subscriptions. Please leave a comment or rate us. We love all types of feedback. You can follow us on Twitter. At Nate G. Edwards is me. At BK Sports Talk is him. And, of course, you can follow the Rockin' Flagship at Rockin' Nation. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, M-I-Z. Z-O-U.